You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Hi, Lauren here, Education Editor at Campus Review. Today I spoke with Associate Professor Fran Martin, who's halfway through a five-year study of Chinese women international students in Australia. She's focusing on their everyday lives as opposed to their academic outcomes. We spoke about her findings so far and her tentative recommendations for Australian policymakers, students and educators going forward. Why do you think there is little previous research on this topic? Yeah, okay. I think it's to do with the fact that international students have been welcomed um, so thoroughly in Australia, mainly for their fees. I mean, mainly it's it's to do with the fact that the, the Australian higher education sector has become increasingly reliant on these fees to fill a kind of funding shortfall that's been left by decreasing federal funding per student on higher education over the past couple of decades. Um, So as a follow-on from that, international students have been framed by universities mainly as consumers, and this is a point that's been made um, in some of the existing research by Simon Marginson and other um, experts in the field as well. So since they're framed as consumers, I guess there's a concern by universities um, to sort of maintain the quality of the product that's being sold, and that product is education. So there's the, the existing research that we do have has tended to focus on education and education studies. So how do the students learn? What problems might they face in the classroom? What's their experience like in the classroom? All of which is important to look at, but it has tended to sort of neglect what's maybe a less obvious question about their wider social experience um, while they're here, which I think is a question that's important um, not only for us looking at them in their role as consumers, and it, it actually is important in that regard as well. Like if you want people to keep coming, we need to ensure that they're having a good general experience. But from my point of view, what's even more important than that is is probably just in itself, it's uh, a question worth looking at, you know, in, in the sense I feel we have an ethical responsibility to think about the quality of their overall experience and not just their educational experience while they're here. So you chose to focus on Chinese women in particular. Was there a reason for that focus specifically? Yeah, there's a number of reasons. I mean, if we if we divide up international students in Australia by nationality and gender, then Chinese women students are the largest group um, in the sense that Chinese students from the People's Republic of China now make up over 30% of our international students. And within that 30%, more than 50%, I think around 54, 55%, something like that, are female. So they're the biggest group. Um, But another reason uh, is also that it's about my research specialisations. I mean, I'm sort of specialised in Chinese youth cultures and I also specialise in gender studies. So I'm academically interested um, in this group for those reasons. And then within that, um, I'm sort of even more specifically interested in some of the unique contradictions that um, are faced by this particular generation of young middle-class Chinese women. Um, Because on the one hand, they're mostly only children. So they're from the era of the... They were born in the era of the one-child policy. 
and they benefit, therefore, from resources and support from their parents that might otherwise had gone, have gone to sons if they had had brothers. So their parents and their families, grandparents generally, um, encourage these young women to develop themselves independently as successful professional women through education. On the other hand, though, there's kind of an opposite um, pressure on them which is what many sociologists in China have pointed to as the re-traditionalisation of gender roles after the end of Maoism. So we see things like a widening gendered pay gap and we see women being encouraged back to the family, quote-unquote, in times of um, unemployment in the cities. And we see the rise of this really pernicious way of thinking about um, professional, highly educated women in their late 20s as... Um, if they're unmarried, calling them leftover women. I don't know if you've heard that term. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very common one in Chinese media and, and public discourse. And obviously it's stigmatising people who aren't married by a certain age. So this generation of women is facing immense social and familial pressure to sort of reorient themselves from self-focus and self-development and education, professional development, and towards a more family-focused identity as wives and mothers, um, basically before they turn 30. So that their 20s um, are a time of really strong contradictions that are quite hard to manage for many um, young women. And I guess I wanted to see what would happen to the way they negotiate those contradictions if they leave China for a few years for study during their 20s, um, and then what would how, how they would then respond to those kind of pressures in the light of having been away for a few years. So um, you've sort of covered one reason already, which is um, them wanting to sort of branch out of that societal expectation. But have, did they mention any other reasons for coming to Australia to study? Yeah, they did. I mean, I think this came out particularly um, when I interviewed um, 30 of the students before they left China. And 10 of those, I also got to interview their parents, particularly their mothers tended to come along to the interviews. So for um, the mothers and also for those young women coming to study at master's level who maybe had already had some work experience, they were saying they were particularly interested in study abroad because they knew about gendered bias in the professional job market in China. So... Um, they wanted to sort of use a Western University um, higher degree in a sense to level the playing field against less qualified male job applicants. So they had stories of, uh, you know, um, oh, my, um, my, my good friend at university, uh, 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 you know, a girlfriend um, had the highest GPA in our class and she went for this job, but then one of our male classmates got the job and we know his GPA was lower and so on. And the, and the mothers who'd already had experience in the workforce certainly knew about people being um, having trouble when they got pregnant in the sense of maybe not keeping their job or not having their job left for them um, during their period of maternity leave or not being offered maternity leave, all kinds of things like that. So they're quite aware of those gendered pressures in the workforce and yeah, basically hope that studying abroad could help them get a professional job in the first place in competition with male applicants. And did uh, most of them plan to go back to China once they had gotten their degrees? That is really hard to say. I asked them that question um, at the beginning of their studies and those who were partway through the studies when I first contacted them. And really the answer was 
they didn't know. It was sort of like, well, most of them were sort of saying, mm, probably go back, but if I had an opportunity to stay and work, I might do that for a while or I might end up staying. You know, I think really there's a, there's sometimes a perception in Australia that um, international students, because of our migration program and because of the graduate working visa and the opportunity to essentially convert from a student visa to a skilled migrant visa eventually, there's a perception that people come with this very cold calculating plan of migration. But I found that there were a couple of people I interviewed who were very sure that they wanted to immigrate um, ultimately. But most people were very aware of how difficult that path is and were not willing to say, yes, that's my plan. They were more sort of saying, well, let's see what happens. Let's take it a step at a time, um, which I've found throughout the study is generally their orientation towards the future. It's very hard for this generation to have any certainty about where they're going to be in two years, in five years, in ten years. You know, it's sort of, it could be back in China, it could be here, it could be somewhere else kind of um, feeling to their responses to those questions. On to their experiences in Australia. How have they shaped their attitudes towards those key study points that you mentioned on gender, for example? Yeah, okay. So in relation to questions around gender, sexuality, marriage, intimate relationships and so on, I mean, I am only partway through the study, so I can't be conclusive about this. But um, a couple of tentative findings. Um, One is that it seems to me and to my participants when I talk to them about this, that um, the Chinese students who are in um, Australian cities develop almost like an alternative world in relation to sex, gender, morality and relationships, which is a bit different to the way they would have approached these things when they were at home, so that the rules that apply in China become a little bit um, different while they're here or a little bit more relaxed. So um, one example is, it's really common while in Australia for people to cohabit without being married, so people living with their boyfriends um, or partners, um, where, some, of course, sometimes people do that in China as well. This generation is already quite a sort of liberal one in relation to, um, I guess, intimate relationships. But it's easier to develop um, this these kind of different norms out here because of the lack of close range surveillance basically by the elder generation like whether that's parents or grandparents or neighbours or you know just other people in the society who might particularly for women um, in China might draw conclusions about somebody's um, basically you know morality if she was to do something like that at home but she's able to do it out here so that's quite interesting um, and then you get regimes of um, sort of selective information sharing with people who are back home um, about what you're doing out here just to just to maintain um, feminine reputation I guess you know I mean, it's a very you know sexist thing that girls have to worry about this more than more than um, boys do but that's that's often the case. So, so somehow geographic distance um, makes a difference in the way uh, people manage that their reputation in that in that regard and and manage their intimate lives. So that's been interesting. And I don't think it's. I mean, sometimes people ask me, is that because they're picking up on the different um, sort of sex gender value system in Australia? 
And I, I mean, it kind. I mean, when I ask my participants that, they they sort of say sort of like they have the impression that people manage relationships here a little bit differently than in China, but because many of them don't have really close friendships with local students uh, or peers, they're not necessarily picking up those cues from them. It's more just the simple fact of being away from home causes people to be able to elaborate different kind of systems. Um, the other thing I've noticed is, um, I mean, I've, I have known some of these participants, particularly those from the pilot study, which was done in 2012. I've known them for a number of years now. And as they progress through their 20s, at the start they might say their ideal age for marriage is, you know, 26 or 27. As they get to 26 or 27, it's like, no, actually, maybe after 30 we'll be okay. So um, the ideal age for marriage keeps rising higher and higher as time elapses and they see that the time is getting shorter, all of the things they want to achieve before they feel they'll be sort of, um, I don't want to say trapped, but, but sort of constrained perhaps by a different kind of identity after marriage. Um, all of that becomes more present to their minds and they, they, they sort of start thinking maybe a later marriage is, is a good idea after all. In relation to national identity, and this is kind of a, a big question, um, I guess, in Australian media in recent um, months, it's true that... Um, when I first, uh, I, I mean, because I ask this question regularly, I ask them the question of, you know, wh how do you feel about the country of your birth? Um, what are your feelings for China? And I ask that a lot of times during the study to see how it changes. And there is a trend for people to say, oh, I think I've, I, I love China even more now that I'm overseas. And there's even a bit of a discourse among them that sort of says, oh, everyone knows when you've lived abroad for a while, you love China more. So I've seen that quoted by other scholars and journalists in the press here. But the thing is, when I ask more questions after that and continue to probe deeper, the picture becomes more complex. I say, well, what do you mean? In what regard do you love China more? And they'll come up with cultural and personal aspects like, oh, I miss, I think the people there are really lovely. My family's lovely. I miss the food. I miss the convenience of everyday life. I think Chinese history is very rich and, um, you know, valuable resource for us, these kind of soft cultural aspects rather than a sort of hard nationalism. Um, and correspondingly, also some participants come to increasingly appreciate the institutions that they encounter abroad, um, institutions like freedom of the press, um, freedom of association, the multi-party political system, so all of that is at the same time as saying, but I really love China. So I think their nationalism is very complex. Um, and I'm coming to see actually popular eruptions of nationalism such as we, that we see among Chinese students abroad, for example, on, on Chinese social media. I'm coming to see these actually in part as a particular type of public performance, right? I'm, I'm not saying it's not sincere, but it seems like say, on National Day or on the day of um, the military parade. Um, this is um, the anniversary of the, the War of Resistance against Japan a couple of years ago. You know, suddenly your WeChat feed is covered in Chinese flags. And I'm beginning to see that um, the students are seeing that as, it's like it's the right thing to do. It's the right m sort of motions to make on that day. It's the appropriate um, kind of speech to have on that day, if you like. 
And particularly if you feel that your country is under attack by people who are not from that country, then the right thing to do is for you to defend it um, much as you would defend your family if somebody said something nasty about your mother or father. So having that kind of response, I think, does absolutely not mean that you uncritically accept or applaud every decision, every stance, every policy of a particular government. What it means is it's seen as ethically correct to defend your nation if it's under attack overseas or to applaud it if it's, you know, having a sort of major um, significant festival or something like that. And I'd add to this that I have had many of co many conversations with students where they openly criticise aspects of the of the regime. So, and these again are the same students who would say that they love their country. So I kind of think that um, the type of popular youth patriotism that many commentators have remarked in this generation in China maybe is a bit unfamiliar in an Australian context. I, I, I know we have eruptions of certainly have eruptions of youth nationalism here um, on, on certain occasions, but I, I don't think that overall patriotism is quite as cool for Australian youth as it is for this generation in China. Um, but having said that, I don't think that this type of patriotism is necessarily as, as sinister as some media reports have painted it. I think it's far more complex. So drilling down to their more sort of day-to-day -day experiences, I think there's also a bit of a perception in the media that um, some of these students only get by at university with the help of tutors or through you know various cheating mechanisms or they just um, sort of repeatedly fail and are allowed to resit exams until they pass. So has that been um, what you've noticed at all amongst the cohort that you're studying? No, not at all. I mean, I'm, the academic ability in my main um, core group of, of 50, or a bit more than 50 if you count the pilot study, is right across the spectrum of ability. So we've got people getting the Dean's Prize for the top students in their year, and we've got people who failed some subjects. And it looks to me pretty similar to the domestic students that I teach um, in terms of how much people struggle, how much people fail or, or need to be helped by tutors. I'm actually not, it's interesting the question of tutors. I, I don't think that I, I'm just thinking maybe one or two of my participants have sort of had a tutor during their time in university, but no, they generally just rely on their own efforts of, of studying um, and doing, working as hard as they can. In fact, I mean, the one thing that, because, you know, I've sort of got a double identity. I'm being a researcher and I'm also, I also work and teach in a university. So, and I shift between those roles a little bit in my own mind when I'm speaking to my participants who do sometimes ask me for advice about study in the course of just when we meet up and chat about life. And the one thing I find myself, you know, <laughs> telling them is, really to make, you need to make use of the, the resources the university has available. Please go and talk to your lecturers. Please, you know, give yourself the best chance by speaking to your tutor, by clarifying the question, by asking them about the structure for your essay before you hand it in. So I'm, I'm asking them to, to take on more, um, if you like, tutoring from the university than they may have realised when they arrive that, that, that they're entitled to. So there, I absolutely don't think that there's a big problem along the lines you've described with sort of being pushed through or, or relying on tutors or anything like that, at least not in 
among the students that I'm looking at, who are, they're also, I would add, across a range of different universities, from group of eight universities right through to, um, you know, more recently established um, institutions outside the group of eight. And, yeah, no, they, they, they're not um, struggling in, generally in the kinds of ways you describe um, at all, although I would, you know, say, of course, anyone for whom English is a second language faces academic disadvantage in an English-speaking country. I mean, that's just, or an English-speaking institution, that's just clearly, you know, the case. Um, yeah, but no, no I'm, the, the other problems you mentioned, I'm not, I'm not really aware of in this group. On to a, I don't know what to really call this, whether it's sort of a cultural characteristic or simply, as you said, being a second English language speaker. Mm. But um, is sort of shyness an issue in the classroom and also socially because of those language difficulties? Yeah, I think the question of language is a really complex one. I mean, and there's a bit of a vicious circle, chicken and egg scenario here. We know from the research around language acquisition that the best way to learn a language is to use it. And I'm sure, you know, if you or any listeners have learned a second language, they'll, they'll know this as well. You learn by speaking. You don't really learn in the classroom or from a textbook. So um, when Chinese students are effectively excluded from local social and friendship networks, as they are very clearly, I think, coming out of my research, I can see that, when they're excluded from those friendships, they don't have a chance to improve their English as much as they would if they were managing to, you know, hang out more with English speakers, and that can become um, a vicious circle. Um, shyness, yeah, I think I do think um, I do think that I'm not sure why, but um, these this particular group of students seems to. Be, be worried about the level of their English to the extent that it prevents them from using it sometimes because they're so worried about making a mistake or having people think that their English is poor that, that, that it inhibits them from just having a go. I'm not, I don't really, I'm honestly puzzled by that. I don't know if it's something to do with the way English is taught in China or um, I, can't, I can't quite understand it except, I mean, I guess it's, mm, just thinking on the spot here, I, it's, it's, some, probably something to do with uh, world history in a much bigger bigger sense, in the sense that, you know, the West and particularly Anglophone cultures have been associated with modernity, um, with progress, with being, you know, a modern system uh, citizen of the contemporary world. So there's something about feeling that your English isn't good, which is almost, it can be sensed as almost, sort of shameful, like I'm, I'm not good enough, I'm not up to the task, I'm not, I'm not part of this imagined community that I hope to be part of. Um, maybe that's where it comes from. But yeah, there's, there's, there's some sort of shame sometimes associated with sensing that your English isn't good. I mean, I think everyone's English is, is fine. It's certainly enough to communicate with. I wouldn't say they have poor English, but they do worry about that. Um, so, or at least some students do worry about that a lot. And I think that can that can hold one back from opportunities for further learning. Do they find social connections with each other or with other international students? It's yeah. The general pattern I've found is there is a group of maybe I'm estimating based on my little tiny sample about um, 
10 to 15% of my group are extremely extroverted and outgoing and the opposite of what I just described, um, just, just naturally. And they are able to make any kind of friend they want. They make local friends, they make other international friends, they can be friends with each other, you know, they're just very good at making friends and particularly good at making friends across cultures. But that's about 10 to 15%, so a small, a small number. Most of my sample are very disappointed insofar as when they left China to come to Australia, they were hoping and expecting that a big part of their experience would be to do with making local friends, with becoming, in their phrase, integrated into Australian society. They constantly sort of use, use that phrase. Um, but when they arrive and try to do those things, they find it much harder than they had expected. Um, and they tend, after a month or two, to feel a little bit defeated by how difficult it is to make friends with local peers. Um, so why is that? It's, it's not because they don't try insofar as they can, but it's because when in class they sit next to a local student, maybe they're put in an assignment, group assignment with some locals, or they just meet them in their class, and they try to take that further, um, the local students basically seem uninterested in pursuing friendships um, with the students from China. And I've thought about this a lot, and I, I've observed it in the classroom too, when I went in my role as you know teacher in a university, I can see the class splitting into two groups. And I can see the local students um, just not being interested, just kind of being vaguely polite and sort of nice enough, but they're, they're kind of not really caring about making these connections go any further. So I've thought a lot over the years about why this is, and I do think it has elements of racism, and I do think it has elements of anti-Chinese sentiment sometimes. But also I honestly think that Australian-born students on the whole are just not trained to be very cosmopolitan. They find it difficult. They find it awkward to relate to people from um, different, very different cultures from their own. And they certainly just don't know how to sort of warmly welcome these people and effectively forge friendships with them. So, you know, I sometimes wonder whether as, um, as educators we could do more to ready our local students for understanding how this can happen and what, what they would need to do to make this work. Aside from that, is there anything else that these students raise that they're finding really difficult about studying in Australia or that they dislike? Yeah, uh, okay, so dislikes. They obviously dislike racism. They're, they've all, they're all aware of it. They've either themselves been the target of racist abuse in public space or in graffiti or in... Those are really obvious examples. It's very direct, but also they're subject to it in less direct ways just by people stereotyping them and so on. Um, that's obviously unpleasant for anybody to have to go through. Um, and they do dislike the, the way the local students are sort of fairly indifferent towards them. Um, they really dislike what they, I think, rightly perceive as high levels of ignorance and prejudice about China um, on the part of people in general. Not all people here, of course, but many people they meet would sort of not have much clue about, um, you know, contemporary China and, and might be prejudiced against it. And they, of course dislike perceptions of prejudice among certain um, academic staff as well and as, as rightly they, they, they should dislike that it's, it's not something they should have to deal with I think. 
And did they have any comments on the quality of our education? Yeah, I mean, generally, that's it's because my study is mainly looking at their social experience. I'm not directly asking them that question. I think it comes up so in conversation. I mean, most of the studies that are done about that question show that the levels of satisfaction with the educational outcomes are okay. Um, some show they're very okay, like over 80% or around there, and other, other studies, depending on whose statistics you look at, show a little bit lower. Um, I, I mean, I think because I'm, I'm, I'm doing in-depth work with a very small number of students, so it's not like a survey. What I get is detailed discussions of a particular lecturer or detailed discussions of a particular subject or course. And there's certainly some complaints about, um, as I said, perceptions of prejudice. Um, one participant told me that um, her lecturer at one of the Victorian universities had given handouts to the local students for revision but didn't give them to the international students, which is like, if that's the case, it's, you know, I, I, I can't imagine what that person's thinking. <laughs> so, you know, stories like that, and that's just one example of many, um, would suggest, you know, if obviously staff are going to behave like that, that will cause dissatisfaction with the educational um, aspect. But that's not the norm. Um, the norm is, you know, overall, more or less, over the course of a whole degree, things turn out okay, even if you have one or two tutors or lecturers who you feel are not great. Um, generally, you know, the quality of education's all right. So overall, I know you're still doing the study, but so far, would you say that their experience as a cohort has been positive for them? I think it's really, I mean, yes, in general, in general, it's positive. They're not going to, if things continue as they are going now, they're not going to say that they regretted coming or anything like that. It's generally been pretty good. Um, but of course, it's a mixed picture and it depends which aspect, you know, we're, we're looking at. I think, and I do think that a lingering disappointment will be how hard it's been to make more effective connections um, with local peers and with local sort of culture more generally. On to the fact that you're developing recommendations. Uh, obviously, you have yet to finalise or formalise them, but can you share any potential ones so far? Yeah, I have, do have some ideas for um, what I'll um, eventually sort of schematise into, into recommendations. So just kind of four of them come to mind when you ask that question. The first one is about um, the way information is provided to students and their families. And I, I feel that it, it would be really beneficial to do this much more consistently in multilingual formats and not just in English. Um, and I mean here offering accurate and up-to-date information about really important things outside of the university. So things like their rights as a tenant. How does the health system work? You know, what is a GP? Why do you have a GP instead of going to the hospital when you're sick? Um, what will your overseas student health cover insurance? What does that cover? How does that work? Um, also workers' rights, um, especially the minimum wage, how to calculate what your minimum wage should be for your job. What is the tax-free threshold um, under which you don't have to pay any tax, therefore, you know, you don't need to sort of freak out about <laughs> about tax issues if you're, if you're going to be beneath the tax-free threshold. Um, wage theft, how common it is 
in the hospitality industry here and how it's illegal. All of these things could be provided in, in multiple languages, I think, to international students. Because currently, the way that students access this information, the students from China, it's not so much from the university sources or the government sources in Australia, because those are provided in English. Um, not that they can't read, they can read English, obviously, but we all know it's easier to read something, and particularly very important information, it's much more effectively communicated in your, your own mother language. So they tend to find this information in Chinese, circulated informally through WeChat public accounts, and it's not always accurate, and it's not always up to date. So I feel, why, why don't we have, you know, wouldn't it be good if, if really reliable information provision could be done in, in um, Chinese, written Chinese form as well as in English? Secondly, um, I've just been thinking a bit about this question of particularly some of my participants um, who were enrolled in master's degrees have now graduated. When they graduate, they're eligible to apply for a graduate working visa. And the graduate working visa is one way that the Australian government uh, encourages international students to choose Australia. You know, you can come here and after you finish your degree, you get the chance to work in Australia for a year or two. So that sounds very attractive. That's something that other countries don't offer. However, um, in the areas that the majority of or a large percentage of students study, particularly finance and accounting and business and related sort of areas of study along those lines, a lot of um, Australian businesses refuse to offer internships or jobs to applicants who don't already have permanent residency. In other words, the graduate working visa is not enough to get you um, the job experience that you want in the area of your study. And that just seems to me a little bit contradictory. <laughs> um, and I wonder... I'm not sure, as I say, you know, I haven't had the chance to research this thoroughly and figure out what, what we could recommend there, but it just seems to me there's a bit of a contradiction there in the sense we're offering people a chance to work and then we're saying but businesses don't have to offer them work. That seems like a contradiction. Um, thirdly, um, I'm also just as part of this study um, with some colleagues from the Burnett Institute of Medical Research, We've done a, a large survey of Chinese international students' um, experiences and knowledges and understandings of, um, of sex and of sex education while they're in Australia. And potentially, we haven't analysed all of that data yet. We've got a lot of data from there. Um, it'll take us a while to analyse, but potentially, it looks like there may be a need for some targeted sex education, um, particularly on safer sex, because sex ed is something that is often missing in the Chinese education system. It's supposed to be there, but a lot of teachers anecdotally just kind of skip that part so that when 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds come overseas to study, um, some education on safer sex might just be a really helpful um, thing that we could maybe provide. And finally, um, it comes back to what I was uh, saying before about edu actually educating local students in cross-cultural communication and how the internationalised classroom could value add to their own education. I think it'd be really valuable if we could think about how to do that. How do we orient domestic students towards the international students that they're sitting next to so that collectively in that internationalised classroom 
both cohorts can learn from each other and can sort of value add to their educational experience overall. So that's that's the four I've thought of so far. How would you like to see this data used once the study finishes? Yeah, I think it's got a few uses. I mean, it's got hopefully it's got academic applicability and then um, some practical um, or more direct applicability as well. I mean, I guess academically, what I'm wanting to, and I will write an academic monograph out of the study, which I hope will deliver new insights into a few things, into certainly into the lived experiences of China's current generation of urban middle-class women, their, under, their changing understandings of gender and what it means to be female. Um, also, more broadly, into how does it feel for people who are living lives under conditions of increased personal mobility, which are conditions that affect not just this group, but a large and growing number of people in the world today, which is you know far beyond just China and Australia. So how does it feel to be a person who's on the move professionally and educationally and just generally um, throughout one's life course? How does it affect one's sense of oneself, one's sense of one's identity, whether in gendered terms or national cultural terms and so on, one's view of the world and one's place within it. So a kind of contribution to mobility studies there, I guess. But in terms of the Australian higher education sector, I'm really hoping to contribute to sort of broad level reflections on the changing nature of higher education in Australia in the context of educational globalisation. And to ask, or you know, along with other scholars also working in this field, to, to collectively ask like where we're headed and how we can best meet the challenges of the new internationalised educational environment, I guess. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this subject, which I've never seen sort of covered before academically. So mm. thanks for that. It's a pleasure. 